When it comes to investing, there is a need to be careful. Now, part of it is we're all inundated by fraudulent investment opportunities. Could be for some real estate. It could be for some project. It could be for some get-rich-quick scheme. But the sad reality is many individuals have been burned by these investment opportunities. But the same is also true when it comes to us investing. We sit with um, a money manager who helps us determine where we should place our investments and gives us guidance on what it is we would like to invest in. And part of it has to do with whether or not we're really ready to take some risk. And there's kind of a graduated scale. And the line has to do with the more risk you're comfortable with taking, the greater potentially can be the reward. Now, sometimes individuals, as they have been extremely risky in their comfort level, find out they've also lost their shirt before it's all said and done. What I need us to understand is life is like that. In fact, all of life consists of risk that individuals take. And some of those risks do bring rewards. Others bring harm or problems to us. And Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, as he's provided us with a book to help us know where we find meaning and purpose in life, wants to give us some guidance about the everyday activities we face, the risks that are associated with them, and how we minimize those risks and use those opportunities for our benefit and for our good. So I invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, I want to begin reading in verse 5. Solomon says, There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from a ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Now, in this section that we find ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is really providing us with deductions from the theme that he's established and basically is telling us that we will find our fulfillment, our meaning, our purpose, and satisfaction in life when our focus is upon the Lord and he is also the foundation upon which we are building our lives. Those who try to find their fulfillment, their satisfaction in the things of this world will be left empty, always wanting more. And Solomon tells us that while earthly pursuits 
are something that are important for us, they are not the ultimate. They are not to be the driving force in our life. I mean, if I go to the New Testament, it tells me the same truth, where Paul, when he admonished the Christians in Ephesus, said to them that it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve, not an earthly master. And it reminds us that while we engage in our earthly activities, we diligently apply ourselves to them, but our ultimate focus is not just to gain something from the temporal, although we will have some benefit from it. It certainly isn't living for it, so it captures our heart and diverts our attention to what really is important, but we recognize we are performing it at a higher level than those of this world because it's an offering and a service to Christ rather than just to get a job done. And Solomon has been saying the same thing. It is those who fear the Lord and fear him openly that are truly blessed and benefited. Now, if you think of this book where he talks about the vanity of living for temporal uh, pursuits, he states in verse, or chapters 1 through 6, all of the ways man has tried to satisfy himself with the things of this world and has come up empty. And after he developed that theme in those first six chapters, in chapters 7 through 12, the deductions that come from it. And in those deductions, what Solomon is doing is providing us with gems of wisdom that we can better know how to live our daily lives. And here we are in the midst of some of those gems of wisdom. And in particular, Solomon is providing us with proverbial statements to help reinforce the points that he is making. And as he does so, he says in verse 5, there is an evil I have seen under the sun. Just to be sure we are all on the same page when we uh, see these terms, the phrase under the sun is not a phrase which means people are living without God. I mean, whether I'm a believer or I'm a non-believer, I live under the sun. It's just a common phrase to be used to say, I'm living in this world, and here's how things really are. Whether I'm righteous or unrighteous, whether I'm a believer or I'm a non-believer, I am living under the sun. In other words, this life that you and I have now before we're taken in death. The other is the term evil. There is an evil I have seen under the sun. And typically in our mindset, and especially if we have been somehow reared in the Christian uh, community and in the jargon that is true for the Christian people, we think of evil as something sinful. This Hebrew word is much broader. It doesn't always mean something that is morally damaging or, or sinful. It basically means an affliction. It means something that is detrimental. It is a term or a phrase which means that I have a given distress or misfortune. So Solomon says, here's a distress, here's a misfortune. Here is something detrimental that I have seen to, for people living in this world. 
And he says, I want to give you a comparison. So think about it. It is just as detrimental. It is just as great an affliction and a misfortune like a ruler who makes a bad decision. What happens when the ruler makes an error in the decision that he makes for his people or for those who are under his domain, dominion? It's destructive. It's hurtful. It's damaging. If it is the wrong decision for the circumstance, be it that the individual who made the decision didn't have all the facts, the reality is that almost every decision we make still has some facts that are unknown. Or it could be an arrogance on the part of the ruler and they're not listening to other advice and counsel and so they make a decision contrary to the advice or counsel. Or it could be that even the advice was given was wrong advice. But the bottom line is that for whatever reason, an erroneous or a mistaken decision was made, people suffer for it. It is detrimental for the well-being of the populace under that individual's authority. So just like you and I can know that if the ruler makes a bad decision, we're all going to pay the consequences for it, here is something I have observed in society that is just as detrimental, just as great an affliction as a ruler who makes the wrong decision. And what is it? Well, notice he says, folly is set in exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Now, again, if I think of the term that he uses when he talks about uh, while the rich are sitting in the lowly places, I have to remember that Solomon is writing from the persuasion of the theocracy, which was true for the nation of Israel. And in the Mosaic Covenant, God had made great promises for the Israelites that if they would obey his dictates, they would be very prosperous. But instead of them enjoying the positions of leadership and authority, they're in low places or they are humbled. But in place of these individuals, the princes, those who have been trained to make these decisions, what does he state is exalted? Folly. Folly is exalted. And I hope by now you begin to see that folly is more than just somebody being foolish, doing silly little things that don't make any rhyme or reason. But the idea of foolishness or folly in this regard is really an aspect of sinful expression. And that aspect of sinful expression doesn't mean everybody is living their lives in the gutter. When Jesus Christ condemned individuals in his own generation during his earthly life, the individuals he had the most scathing denunciation towards 
were the self-righteous religious individuals. Now, in that case, they were individuals who stated, well, we're serving God. We don't know about Jesus because he's not doing things the way we think they ought to be done. If I go to the Psalms and I go other places and I look for this concept of folly, it begins by the fact that the exaltation is to a a philosophical concept that states God is irrelevant. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It means a culture and a society not only is upside down, right? Those who should be in the places of leadership aren't there, but those who have no business being in a place of leadership are there. And it all gets around to the fact that when you don't have an absolute and a foundation, then the culture becomes the absolute which is a very unstable place to be. If I look at our own country, what is the absolute in America today? It's the persuasion of the majority. And the only absolute is what the majority determines that this is what's acceptable. Folly is in exalted places. Because we have no real foundation that is sufficient to build a culture and a society. And what are we told by those who are in positions of authority? We got to have separation of church and state. We don't want any religious influence. And especially if that religious influence includes Jesus Christ and his God, which is the only true God. Folly is in exalted places. And what folly is saying is God is irrelevant to us as a culture, to us as a society, to us as a people. Unless every once in a while God hits us with a tragedy and then somehow everybody for the moment says, I guess we ought to take note of God and wonder why isn't God helping us when we've said every other day he is not important. The second thing for me to understand when it says folly is in exalted places in a culture that is upside down, that says God is irrelevant to everyday living within this culture, is that the culture begins to call good bad and bad good. When folly is in exalted places, We are told we have to be accepting of every lifestyle. We're told we have to be accepting of every form of sinful activity. And as Paul would say in Romans, what happens is that individuals who are doing sinful, detrimental things are given hearty approval by others around them. God says very clearly, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is the reproach of any people. We no longer can declare what is inappropriate or sinful because folly is in exalted places. 
And sooner or later, we will find that should God be kind and allow America to continue as a nation, that we will go beyond our culture and our government being anti-Christian, which we are now, to being a culture which persecutes Christian in the name of equality. What does it mean? It's a calamity. It's an evil. It's a distress. It's an affliction. It is something just as detrimental as if a ruler had made a bad decision and brought harm to all the people who were in that realm. And so what we have is the fact that what is detrimental to our well-being is the fact that individuals analyze what needs to be done. And the final thing I need to say about this idea is to realize when it says folly is in exalted places, it also means the PhDs are there. It means the smart people of our culture are there. It means the intellectuals who analyze and have the answers for everything are there. It's a recognition that when folly is in exalted places and you've stated that God is irrelevant to the culture and society, there is a way that seems right to man, but what's the end result? Death. If I go to the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it very clear that individuals and a culture or group in a society are going to operate on two, one of two forms of thinking and wisdom. There is the wisdom of man and there is the wisdom of God. And ultimately, the wisdom of man will come up with the wrong conclusions. That's why I need something that illuminates the darkness. That's the value of the word of God. It's a light to my path and a lamp to my feet. And when I say God is irrelevant, when I'm ignorant of the truth of this book, I am groping in darkness to find my way, tripping and stumbling and eventually having what is detrimental and destructive to me. Are you aware of that folly? Are you aware of how harmful that is when a culture turns its back on God? Because you recognize, don't be deceived. You know who isn't mocked? God. And what you as an individual or what we as a culture sow, we will reap. And so when we find the unraveling of the culture, we find increased lawlessness, when we find no longer a conscience about what's right or wrong to do, why is that so? Because we've said God is irrelevant. And so God in return has said, you're irrelevant. Man's irrelevant. He gives us over to a depraved mind that we might do the things that are self-destructive. 
a horrible evil, misfortune, distress, affliction in this world. Then he says, in order to function and operate in that setting, what you need is wisdom. And he does so by giving us some short little proverbial statements. He's, and you'll notice that verses 8 through 11 are a group because he says in verse 8, he who digs a pit may fall into it and a serpent may bite him who breaks through the wall. And then look at verse 11, if the serpent bites. So verse 8, a serpent biting. Verse 11, a serpent biting. And contained within there are these proverbial statements for us to understand the truths that Solomon wants to convey. So first he says, he who digs a pit, and that pit could be digging a well for water. It could be a pit that would be used to capture, you know, ferocious beasts. But the danger that's there, if you're down in that pit and shoveling, <laughs> you know, the dirt out, what could happen? Well, it could cave in. And even today with construction crews digging holes to bury uh, different types of pipelines, every once in a while we hear about a worker that is trapped, worker that's crushed, whatever it may be his situation. There's risk. He who digs the pit has the risk of maybe falling into it. Same thing he says. A serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, he's not talking about doing some inappropriate activity, but you have to remember in the land of Israel that each plot of land was established by boundaries that would be uh, rocks that were piled up. Guess what likes to hide in the crevices of little rocks? Serpents, vipers, snakes. And if you're involved in breaking through that wall, maybe you have to change the boundary because you acquired land from a neighbor, whatever it is. There is a risk that you may be bitten by a venomous snake. He who quarries stones, so if you're mining stones, breaking, you know, marble, granite, whatever it may be, uh, chips of it can hit you, rocks can fall on you, landslides might take place. And also, he who splits logs, you, know, you may end up with a piece of the uh, log flying and hitting you, you may be endangered by them. Solomon is looking at common everyday activities that were true of his day. And what he was saying is, as you engage in your common everyday activities, there is risk involved. It's not any different today. All the statisticians want to tell us about, you know, the fact that it's safer to fly an airplane because you're more likely to get injured or killed in a car crash. You go mountain climbing. You might find yourself plummeting to your own death. 
if we do something like crossing the street and we're not as careful as we should be, we can get hit by the car. You go fishing with buddies. You stand too close. You find that when that individual was casting, he took your ear with it. You know, there's always risk involved in every activity. That's what Solomon wants to convey. And so he is saying, detrimental things may happen to you or me in common everyday activities. So what is it that I need to remember? What is it that wisdom would teach me? Well, the first and foremost thing is that I need to remember is that I have to depend upon God. And depending upon God doesn't mean I don't do those activities. In fact, back in chapter 10, or 9, excuse me, he had stated in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it how? With all of your might. Exert your effort. But while you are doing your daily activities, recognize there is risk always involved. And one of the first things that is important is that I have been cultivating that relationship with the Lord. I am resting in him. I am asking him to watch over and protect me. And as he puts that hedge around me, he will only allow those things to come into my life which are for my ultimate good. Isn't that right? But the second part of it, and I think even more importantly, not to minimize the need to trust in the Lord, is you minimize the risk by using wisdom. If I'm out fishing, I know I don't stand too close to the individual casting the line next to me. If I'm hunting, I don't walk in front of the other hunters. If I am crossing the street, I look both ways before I do. Whatever my activity may be, I need to use wisdom to minimize what could detrimentally happen to me. So wisdom will help me determine the way to minimize the risk. In addition... He says in verses 10 and 11 that there is benefit for wisdom as you utilize it in life. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, what's the outcome? You got to work harder. More physical effort has to be expended. But if you sharpen its edge... That is, you work smarter, you actually get the task done more efficiently, and you're not physically exhausted when you're done. So wisdom has the advantage in giving success. And so you're saying to me, but Joe, I'm not out chopping wood. How does this apply to me? The recognition of what Solomon wants us to comprehend is that whatever your task may be, instead of working harder, you need to work smarter. In other words, 
look at the best way to approach the task so it's efficiently done and you gain the benefit of the success in that undertaking. Not only do I need to apply wisdom so that I find the best way to efficiently get the task done, but he also says, if the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Now, that has always fascinated me. The individuals who, with their little pipe or the music that they play, can get a snake to back away from biting. Um, I don't know the percentages on how often it works, but it still fascinates me. But the point he's making here is, if you call for the charmer, and he starts charming, but the snake's already bitten, there's no profit, no wage, no advantage to the charmer. So what is he telling us? If you're walking by wisdom, you strike when the iron's hot. I don't know about you, but I've often wrestled with that saying that I heard from when I was real young on up. What does it mean to strike while the iron's hot? Well, it's a term associated with a blacksmith. And if you're going to beat on that iron to shape it into an implement or a sword or whatever it may be, guess when you ought to start hammering against it? When it's hot. Otherwise, it is useless in the endeavor. The point is, when the opportunity strikes, I need to take advantage of it. He that snoozes loses. It's to look at the opportunity. Calculate the most effective way to do it. Because if you delay, if you don't apply the wisdom when it's needed, it's not any different than the charmer who lost out on the profit he would have gained because the snake already bit the one who was seeking to hire him. So the point is, no matter how great your skill may be, no matter how much wisdom you may have, if you don't apply it when the opportunity is available, it's useless. You lose out. You don't benefit from it. Life is filled with risks. And you know the riskiest thing that anyone can do is to live in this world and ignore God. I may gain some temporal benefits, but boy, am I the loser. That endeavor to live this life saying God is irrelevant. I'll think about that later. I don't have time to consider that now. To fail to understand that today is the day of salvation 
is the riskiest decision you can make when you ignore God and leave him out. Because life is very uncertain. As Solomon said back in chapter 9, like a bird that's caught in a net or an animal in a trap, so it is for human beings. You die when you don't expect to. There are a few individuals who know they're dying and they go through that death process. But the majority are gone unexpectedly. And everybody moans about what a tragedy, what a waste. Well, the tragedy is if I'm like the rich fool and I might have the world's goods, but I'm not rich towards God. What Solomon wants us to understand is that the greatest of all risk for any human being is to ignore God, to not put my confident trust in him, and eventually pay the piper when I stand before God and he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But as I go through life, if I want to minimize risk, I need to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is trusting in the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who take refuge in him will never be put to shame. The people of the world may mock and ridicule the child of God. But the Lord is the one who honors his people. And who will one day say to all who have put their trust in him, well done, good and faithful servant. As I go through life trusting him. I gain wisdom from him to minimize the risk in my everyday activities. Finding comfort in knowing he's controlling the events in my life, working them together for my good. And even when I make foolish decisions, while he'll discipline me, he also minimizes the effects of those decisions and encourages and comforts me in Christ. By trusting God, I minimize the risk as I go through this life. But most importantly, I have a reward that I cannot even begin to imagine. And even as the Apostle Paul stated you know, the reality that these momentary light afflictions, these misfortunes, these distresses, these difficulties that we face are not worthy to be compared to the unsearchable riches of Christ for all who have put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your truth. I thank you, Father, for the blessing that it is to be one of your children. How I pray that your spirit would work in the heart of each one who is here to encourage or strengthen them in Christ or to even bring them to yourself if they know you not. And that in all things, our wonderful Savior, the only one who is worthy, Jesus Christ our Lord, 
might receive the praise. In his name we pray. Amen.